Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at lovely Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. And from Beijing, we're thrilled to have back our uh, own Anne Sherman, who you may recognize from our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Anne is the moderator there, and she's also up in Beijing studying Chinese at Tsinghua University. And you're also doing a research project, or you're interning with the Carnegie Center there? Right, the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Excellent. So, uh, so we've we've got all all bases covered here tonight, and we are thrilled to be back with another edition of the show. Our format on the show is very simple. We take three basic topics and three of the top topics of the week, and kind of dissect them. This week, we're going to do something a, a little bit different, in that we're going to try and bring you to the uh, the China South Africa trade show that Global Sources is putting on in Johannesburg, and we're going to kind of walk through some of the different products. So although it's not a news story per se, it does touch on a lot of the key issues that are affecting uh, Sino-South African trade, particularly when it comes to uh, manufacturing. So we'll, we'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about this week a pretty big story in the South African press that came about uh, whether or not the Chinese pressured the, uh, the South African government about uh, a visa for the Dalai Lama. Now, a court came out with a ruling that said that the, the South African government was, in fact, playing games with this visa. We'll get Kobus's analysis on that. And finally, uh, we're going to end on the French, one of my favorite topics. Uh, France's foreign minister, he came out this week and said that uh, France needs to step up its game or else it's really going to lose influence to to the Chinese in Africa. And this is a big concern, uh, not only in France, but a lot of other Western capitals. Um, also this week, news came that the United States plans to send a high-level trade delegation to both South Africa and Kenya as well, uh, motivated to, to confront the rising presence of China. So let's get started in South Africa. Kobus, there, uh, there was a court, uh, a court ruling that came down this week about the Dalai Dalai Lama's visit. Just as a little bit of background before we get into what the court said and why it's important, kind of refresh us on this whole saga that was last year when the Dalai Lama was supposed to come to South Africa and to to receive an award. And at the end of the day, he never made it. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the the Dalai Lama is is um, personal friends with um, Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, who is obviously a, you know is a legendary anti-apartheid activist and Nobel Prize winner. So they're in this little basically they this this you know they have this Nobel Nobel Prize based friendship. Um, and the Dalai Lama was supposed to attend Tutu's um, birthday party among other things. Um, and then the South African government they didn't outright refuse the visa. What they did is they basically just refused to make a decision until it was too late and, and the Dalai Lama eventually kind of cancelled the trip. So that looked very bad and Tutu really went off about it in the press. He actually said that the current government is worse than the apartheid government. Um, and now the court is saying that, uh, that you know, this, this kind of um, dragging of, of feet um, in, in making the decision actually constitutes a, a breach, um, you know, and actually an, an unlawful act. And they said it was unlawful because they intentionally delayed the processing of the visa so that it wouldn't come in time. Now, what's very important to note here was that nowhere is there any suggestion or evidence that the Chinese directly intervened 
in this situation. I think that's very important. And correct me if I'm wrong there, Kobus. This is all on the burden of the South African government. And really, I think the idea was that the South African government was so terrified of upsetting the Chinese government that it is the one who intervened in the visa process rather than the Chinese directly requesting that uh, the South African government not grant a visa. Is that correct? Yes, um, the you know from from what, what we've seen, the closest kind of uh, comment from the South African government was there were people in the Ministry of Foreign of Foreign Affairs who expressed um, worry that because South Africa is a, a supporter of the One China policy, that this might be in contravention of the the kind of treaties that they signed with China. That was the closest, most direct kind of indication that there was something you know that 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 revealed kind of. Um, uh, you know, worry, you know, kind of in, in the South African government. But, you know, what I think what, what really frustrated South Africans was that it was this kind of like lie down and play dead kind of um, approach, you know, kind of where the South African government just refused to talk about it at all. They refused to, to kind of, you know, kind of, you know, make any kind of sign about it. They just pretended that the that the application didn't arrive in time and then they just waited it out. Um, and it was this kind of like passive aggressive kind of, a, uh, you know, approach that actually I think made, drove everyone crazy. Well, let, let's give a little bit of background to some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the, the politics and the sensitivities of the Dalai Lama and Tibet. Uh, China contends that Tibet uh, has long been a central part of China and, and integral to, to the Chinese state. Uh, the, 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 the Chinese did militarily intervene in Tibet in the 1950s. Uh, since then, the Dalai Lama has kind of represented the voice of an independent Tibet, and that's often mischaracterized in the outside world in the in the West, the the Dalai Lama has very, very subtle and sophisticated language that he uses with respect to Tibetan sovereignty. He wants Tibetan autonomy. He does not talk specifically about Tibetan independence, and it's a very important distinction. Nonetheless, this is a red line for the Chinese, uh, just like Taiwan. It is a religious issue almost for the Chinese, you know, not to, to use a pun there. But they really, really make sure to try to isolate the Dalai Lama, and they make sure to, uh, to really... Um, I don't know about directly punishing, but they do express their their feelings uh, very strongly to countries that do host the Dalai Lama. So that's a little bit of context for why South Africa may have been concerned that if they acceded to the Dalai Lama's request or Bishop Desmond Tutu's request to to come for the Dalai Lama to come to South Africa, they may have had an adverse effect. Uh, and you're in uh, Be- you're in Beijing. Let me I've- just go ahead, Anne, very quickly. Well, I was going to uh, say, if I might um, try to make a parallel, you know, in 2009, um, Obama actually decided not to meet with the Dalai Lama um, when he was in Washington. And um, a lot of Chinese actually misinterpreted this and thought that Washington was changing its policy. But I think it, it's also, um, you see this the similar importance of uh, maintaining good relations with China and not upsetting China. And um, this was part of the Obama strategy not to upset or cast a bad um, kind of environment or atmosphere um, right before his first trip to China. Um, but it does really show the the power and the importance of uh, China's relationship with the U.S., with South Africa, um, and the importance of good economic uh, relations. And I think that there is a lot of um, similarities between the two actions. Yeah, I mean, the timing of the, of the visit to the White House was right before, as you said, right before Obama's trip to China, and they felt that it would have been too contentious to do that. Uh, it is something of a tradition for the Dalai Lama to visit the White House. Um, 
And so that's something very interesting. That was a break with tradition there. And that also goes, again, diverting ourselves a little bit here to Hillary Clinton's, her statement that said human rights will not be the driving force of, of Sino-American relations. So this really brings up one key issue. And, and Anne, I'd like to get your, your take on this. Um, this idea of non-interference is a central principle of Chinese foreign policy that it will not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. So the you know as China's relationship, particularly with Africa, African states becomes far more complicated, far more, um, you know, multifaceted from trade to culture to education to economics, all these different these different relationships that they have. Um, this this case here does raise the question of whether or not either directly or indirectly China, of course, is interfering in the internal affairs of South Africa. Um, do you see and is this question is this something that's debated at places like the Carnegie Tsinghua Institute in Beijing, this question of a challenge to the internal the, the, the non-interference doctrine? Um, it's, it's not even really debated because it's so, um, I think, cemented in China and Chinese policy that um, this is the most important uh, kind of, uh, I guess, foundation of their foreign policy and that they truly do not intend to interfere or, um, you know, in, impede on the sovereignty of other nations. I think that um, even when I, you know, bring up issues like this, I think that Chinese are very, very um, adamant that um, I don't I actually don't think that this is really an example of of the Chinese trying to interfere in South African, uh, I guess, policy. I think that um, this was kind of South Africa realizing its own interests and um, kind of self-imposing um, a policy to make sure that they um, didn't didn't tarnish their relations mm-hmm. with China, recognizing yeah. how important China is for their economy. Cobus, I mean, I guess the question is... Yes, I, I agree, actually. Um, I think I think another issue, sorry to interrupt you, I think the, another issue is, is, you know, kind of differences within South Africa about what the role of South Africa is in the 21st century. You know, kind of Tutu represents a generation of, of South Africans that really focused on human rights um, and international, you know, kind of international um, democracy promotion and so on, and South Africa's main task, and is very, very invested in South Africa, this kind of symbolic role that South Africa played um, in the late 90s. Um, I think the current government is much, much more interested and much more worried about economic growth. Um, and also, I think there's, a, there's certainly a lot of, of irritation uh, within the, the current um, incarnation of, of the African National Congress with, with Tutu's and Tutu's role. Tutu is very, very critical of the current um, ANC government. So there isn't a lot of love lost there, even though they would definitely pay lip service to his role as you know, kind of a big liberation hero. Um, so I think they also they, they they weren't necessarily from the beginning. They weren't necessarily as sympathetic to him as one would have thought. I think. Okay, so there seems to be consensus among at least the between the two of you that uh, this is not a good example of China, you know, using its muscle to kind of challenge its non-intervention, long-held non-intervention doctrine. Um, but it does, I guess, for me, raise the the specter that. 
it could, and I, I know it's not good to deal in hypotheticals, but um, my prediction is that this non-intervention doctrine is going to face a lot more challenges in the future as China has to make some very difficult decisions about you know, its own questions of sovereignty with things like Taiwan and Tibet, and then at the same time, as its relationships with uh, different countries uh, kind of deepens, will it be able to stay on the sidelines and whatnot? So very quickly, uh, Kobus, on this, on this particular Dalai Lama issue, what happens next? Now that the court has said what it has, does the Dalai Lama have an open ticket to come back to to South Africa? Is that going to be challenged again? Do you do you foresee in the next twelve months? Tutu is already making you know kind of saying that he might want to in, to invite him back, um, and some um, opposition politicians have already invited him back. But they're obviously they're doing it because it's putting the the ANC government into in a difficult position, um, and it allows them to kind of to use the Chinese basically as a stick to beat the government. Um, because, you know, you already see opposition politicians going on and on about how the, the ANC is funded by China and beholden to China. So, um, you know, I, th- I, think, I think we haven't seen the last of this saga. I think it's coming back. And, Anne, when it comes to the Dalai Lama in Beijing, what is the kind of discussion that people have there uh, on this? Obviously, the, 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 the media filter um, is extremely thick. Um, it's not one where you get balanced coverage of any kind whatsoever. But do you get a sense that the academics and analysts, when they look at the issues uh, related to the Dalai Lama in, Sa- in South Africa, for example, um, have the information available in order to fully understand the consequences of these different uh, court rulings? Um, I mean, I think that it's actually a very misunderstood issue because I think that people, the, the West kind of assumes that um, that most Chinese uh, are sympathetic to Tibet, Tibetans, and I think that um, this, first of all, this is an issue that is extremely emotional, and um, I think that if you try to bring it up, even with Chinese friends, it's very, very sensitive and not one that people like to talk about. No. Um, and especially recently, um, there have been, I think, 25 uh, self-immolations this month, and um, at the 18th Party Congress, um, the Chinese Communist Party's 18th Party Congress two weeks ago, they actually had... Um, Chinese officials holding fire extinguishers in different seats within the Congress because yeah. um, they were afraid that people might um, set themselves on fire in protest. But um, I think that um, most Chinese really uh, dislike um, this idea of you know free Tibet, and they do think that the Chinese government is um, has helped the Tibetans a lot. So. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things that for a lot of our African listeners who, who may not fully appreciate kind of the, the, the depth of sensitivity and passion that this, that this topic has. Um, again, it's not uniquely uh, focused on Tibet. This is the same type of passion you'll find when it comes to Xinjiang in the far west uh, with the Uyghurs and also with Taiwan and Inner Mongolia, you know, and so when it comes to Chinese sovereignty and the integrity of the Chinese state, um, there really is no room for compromise when it comes to the Chinese. And as, as Anne said, it's a, a very, very sensitive issue to bring up with with any of your Chinese friends or Chinese colleagues or Chinese acquaintances. So tread very carefully on that particular subject. I, I, just a piece of 
unsolicited advice there. Uh, one area where you don't have to tread too carefully, of course, is trade, something that the Chinese are all too eager to talk about. And uh, this past week, there was a very interesting trade show in South Africa. This was the third annual China Sourcing Fair. And I always find these shows absolutely fascinating because if you ever wondered who makes the little rings on the shower curtains, well, there you go to this trade show and you can find exactly who does that and where they come from. So all the crap that you never knew where it came from is at a trade show like this. Now, of course, the world's most famous trade show um, is in Guangzhou. Every year it's the the Canton Trade Fair. Uh, And this thing is just absolutely massive. Uh, And if you haven't had a chance to go, if you're ever in Canton, Guangzhou, Guangdong at that time, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, It is really something fascinating to see. And this is in in Johannesburg what's going on now with the China-Africa Global Sources Trade Fair. This is some kind of small version of this. So, Cobus, this comes at a very interesting time. So you have this massive trade fair that's going on in, in Johannesburg. And last week we talked about, you know, the difficulty that Chinese companies are facing with manufacturing in uh, in South Africa, whether it comes from taxis. Then this past week we get word that Cherry, one of China's largest auto manufacturers, they're going to go and, and gun for the South African uh, small vehicle market, the subcompact market. Uh, it's very confusing right now to talk about China-South African trade. You see both this incredible optimism, as you see at this fair, and you see this incredible complexity, pessimism, politics, I don't know what to call it. Uh, tell us where we are right now and what this what this fair represents. Yes, no, you know, I think you're completely right. It's incredibly, it's really up in the air and it's really complicated. You know, in the same week, as you said, Cherry has expanded. You see this big trade fair. At the same, also, um, South African uh, manufacturers have been putting pressure on the government to to reduce Chinese imports. And they're saying that that there's, there's reckless importing. Um, that's undercutting uh, South African businesses. So it's all playing in all kinds of directions at the same time. You know, and this is also this trade fair that's going on. Uh, this is a, a really, I wonder if you're in the, mood, in the mood or in the need to meet some senior Chinese officials, this is the place to go. Uh, Li Jiangning, who's the Consul General of the PRC in Johannesburg, he will be there. Zhong Yan Song, who's the Economic and Commercial Affairs Counselor. Uh, Fang Li Xu, who's the Executive Vice Mayor of uh, Chaochu. Uh, Chaozhou, uh, Municipal People's Government. So there's just a long list of uh, of heavy hitters from China who are going to be there. Um, some of the events that some of the products that they're they're selling are consumer electronics, solar energy saving products, fashion accessory garments, textiles, baby and children's products, gifts and premiums, home products, and hardware and building materials. I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, this is what I call the Walmart strategy. This is the go south Walmart strategy. It's something I've been writing about for a very, very long time. China is using uh, the same idea of what Walmart's doing. Walmart went into low-income, very rural, uh, largely southern, working poor areas of the United States and brought products that were cheaper than anybody else could deliver on a scale that nobody else could match. Um, that seems to be a very similar strategy that the Chinese are doing by not only going into Africa, but also into South Asia and also into South America. This fair represents all of that. Now, but the question is, and, and Anne, this is something I'd like to kind of ask you about. This this idea of made in China is a very, very controversial uh, subject. 
on the one hand, China is bringing products that nobody else can bring in the price and the scale into Africa. As we, you know, Kobus talked about this, 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 there's a lot of concern right now that the Chinese are undercutting South African companies, and that's probably the same across the continent. Um, and so now made in China is a very controversial idea, yet consumers must love it because it brings them products cheaper. But on the other hand, um, is some indigenous uh, you know, manufacturers are saying, hold on, don't do this. So when it comes to made in China, how do you think people in Beijing and in China think about their own products as they're going into places like Africa? I mean, I think that your analogy is, um, is exactly correct, and I think it's important to remember that um, in that in the Walmart analogy, there are winners and losers, and that's the same. Um, that's the same thing here. There are winners and losers to, um, you know, for of course, you know, there's a huge influx of goods, and Africans can buy everything from, you know, these solar panels to jackets I'm looking at to pots. But um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely threatening the local industries, and I think that. Um, the Chinese are very much aware of the image of the goods, um, the low quality, and I think that many of them agree and um, criticize, um, you know, the poor quality and regulation. And I think that if you look at um, this fair and all different vendors, um, I think, you know, they each have about two or three sentences description of their company profile. And on every single profile, um, there's at least one sentence dedicated to the quality, um, to which kinds of um, verifications and um, tests that they run and um, kind of, you know, assur- assuring of the quality of their goods um, because I think they realize that this is, you know, the main issue. Yeah. You know, Kobus, what I find interesting in all of this, you know, this hostility coming out of South Africa right now towards China trade, some of it absolutely legitimate, by the way. I mean, Noseweek just came out with another article. I mean, the guys at Noseweek are just on fire about this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, there's no discussion about the question of the currency. Now, in the U.S., you know, remember Mitt Romney said uh, on day one, in, if he won the White House, he was going to label China to be a currency manipulator because he felt that it was the currency question that was undermining American manufacturing and American exports. That is, China artificially manipulates its currency in order to make its exports cheaper so it can undercut uh, you know, manufacturers from other countries and expand its own export market. Yet in the South Africa debate, uh, from all the different angles that we've talked about, uh, you don't hear any of that. And I wonder, that's what brings me back to what you've been talking about. Is the South Africa question more about domestic politics with the ANC, or is it really about China? I think it's, um, yeah, I think it, it's probably a bit of both. Um, you do hear from, like, for example, the Chamber of Commerce, you do hear concerns about currency. So it comes up, but I think it's quite an kind of elite discussion. And uh, I think a lot of people have difficulty following exactly what that means. Um, but, yeah, at the same time, you know, politics in South Africa is crazy at the moment because, you know, kind of the party, called the big ANC conference is coming up in less in, in two weeks or so. So, you know, politics is inflamed. At the same time, um, you have to keep in mind in South Africa, is that South Africa has always been, since it's for, you know, for, since colonialism, South Africa has been um, a, a succession of different kinds of, of monopoly business um, e- economies, you know, kind of where very large companies have essential monopolies over different different sectors in the economy, frequently hidden monopolies that, that appear to be, you know, kind of diversified companies that you then realize actually are owned 
mostly by the same conglomerate. So, you know, I think I, I always tend to take these these kind of furious complaints with a little bit of, uh, you know, a pinch of salt. Um, one, one interesting thing is how frequently when Chinese people come here, they all complain about how expensive South Africa is. You know, and, how, and, you know, and then at some stage you realize, like, well, yes, exactly why is South Africa this expensive? Um, you know, and uh, so I think one has to also take it from that side. You know, kind of obviously certain, certain sectors in, in South African society are, are profiting, literally profiting from, from the kind of the way that things are. They don't want competition from the Chinese. How much do you think the, the, uh, the hostility that we're seeing coming out of certain sectors of the South African economy represents some of the mood across Africa, or is this really unique to South Africa? I think it, it represents, uh, it, uh, you know, it's, it's similar to, to other parts of Africa, but I think the South Africans give it a particular South African spin because they, there's a lot of issues involved there with the, the, the simple weight of the African National Congress in the South African political landscape. You know, so that South Africa is, you know... I don't want to overstate this, but the, the ANC is incredibly powerful, and it tends to it's, it has a bit of a black hole effect in the sense that it tends to suck all resources, all influence towards itself. Um, you know, so and all of the all of the little parties around the opposition parties are become you know kind of you know they they become defined in relation to the ANC, and you know the and the fact that the ANC has developed such a close relationship with China pulls China into the the South African kind of political debate, um, you know, in a way that it might not necessarily be true in other African countries, even though this you know similar kind of themes keep coming up. And last word to you on this. I mean, I think it's all, it, it is all about jobs and the economy. And I think one thing that kind of uh, struck me about this fair was that just last week we spoke about um, the South African government or the South African trade union trying to block um, the, the building of a factory for the Beijing Automotive Works, um, which would have brought a huge number of jobs um, and built an industry for South Africa for building these t- types of taxis. And, um, and it was, I, we just saw an article, um, Erwin Chen posted on our Facebook wall saying that the deal is back on, but it was originally halted. And I think it surprised me that this kind of factory, I'm sorry, this kind of trade fair, um, would be, you know, so acclaimed, um, when it's obviously bringing Chinese made goods, um, whereas the, the, uh, Beijing Automotive Works, uh, manufacturing, uh, factory was kind of blocked. And, um, well, that, you know, that may that be a case just like in the U.S. where the auto lobby, the auto industry has a very powerful lobby. Uh, South Africa probably has an, a, an equally powerful lobby that gets a lot more coverage and attention. You know, that yeah. The, the only the only difference is that in the case of the taxi, um, the taxi factory, what really blocked them, or the group that really blocked it, wasn't a trade union. It was a, a loose um, trade organization of taxi drivers. So not not a trade union of auto workers, but but the actual drivers of the taxis. Yes, um, and they they blocked it for for you know for concerns about quality and control and you know and, and spare parts and, and so on um, more than the I think that I think the workers the auto workers actually really lost out and they were kind of they they, they lost jobs you know due to the to the kind of weird very strong influence that taxi that the taxi drivers associations have in South Africa well what this conference actually does represent is the surging trade volumes that are going on between China and Africa and in fact uh, just this past week uh, Sun Guangxiang who is the deputy minister of uh, deputy 
Deputy Minister of Commerce. Uh, he predicted that this year, in 2012, uh, trade between China and Africa will exceed $200 billion. That is now, that would be up $40 billion from last year. So that uh, last year's trade volume came in at $160 billion. So you can see it's just there's no slowing down. And what a lot of that, of course, is in oil, uh, but it's coming into now more manufacturing and also more uh, consumer goods as well. But it is just huge, huge volumes. And this is now prompting concerns in both Washington and Paris and I'm sure other Western capitals that is it now too late to catch up? Uh, and this was an issue that came up uh, both in Washington. We'll start with the Washington side first, is that the uh, the acting U.S. Commerce Secretary, uh, Rebecca Blank, uh, she is was in South Africa and Kenya this past week uh, to expand business ties. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, the French uh, government, uh, the French foreign minister, Pierre Moscovici, uh, uh, he uh, came out and said, you know, France needs to step up its game in Africa in order to count counter the the Chinese uh, surge in Africa as well. Now, I've made my positions extraordinarily clear on this podcast for a long time that when it comes to uh, the West in dealing with Africa, they are heavily, heavily burdened by both their own uh, you know their past there, uh, and at the same time by their inability to to kind of adapt to the new realities that are there. Um, and when you see you know the U.S. saying it needs to step up against China, when we see the kinds of activities that the Chinese are doing, it's not the governments that are leading in many cases. It's actually being done uh, by all levels of, of of Chinese society that are in Africa, whether it's independent, independent entrepreneurs, whether in some cases it's state-owned enterprises, some of it is a hybrid of both. And when the U.S. says it needs to step up, what does that actually mean? Well, I mean, I think that's exactly the biggest misconception that most Americans think of China's engagement in Africa as, you know, basically huge state-owned companies, and they don't realize that most of it is these small entrepreneurs. And I don't think that there is um, sort of the uh, motivation, um, the same sort of, um, I guess, um, benefits pulling, you know, American entrepreneurs looking to make a profit to Africa. I don't think that they understand the opportunity that's in the market. Or I think think that they're just now kind of um, watching China and um, maybe realizing it. But I think that they're... um, there is a need in the U.S. for, you know, a campaign to kind of um, explain what kinds of business opportunities and potential um, is offered in African markets for small businesses and medium-sized businesses. And um, I think that there are definitely ways that the government can help American small, small and medium-sized American businesses, um, you know, get started in Africa and um, kind of ease the risk that, I think, uh, deters a lot of Americans. Yeah. You know, the, the French have started up what's called a public investment bank with 40 billion euros, and that's not only for Africa, but it, the idea is, just as Anne said, is to support small and medium-sized businesses. You know, as somebody who used to run a small American business in Kinshasa who got absolutely, you know, no support from the Americans, in fact, it was funny because... The system really works against small and medium-sized businesses, even though the French and the Americans talk about this. The amount of paperwork that the Western governments demand of any participation with the government, the, the, is the American or the French government, is absolutely enormous. And that amount of paperwork really is only available 
to large organizations that have, you know, a huge bureaucracy to support it. So there's these inherent contradictions in what the politicians say they need to do and the realities on the ground. The Chinese, on the other hand... But wouldn't you say... Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you say that the Chinese have uh, just as little support from their own government? It's just that these Chinese are much more willing to take a larger risk. They are much more willing to take risks. But at the same time, I think that the Chinese state-owned enterprises, when they come in on, in their large scales, they don't obviously have to fill out quite the same level of paperwork. I don't think the Chinese look at it as as giving money to small and medium-sized enterprises to go and invest in China. The small and medium-sized enterprises that are investing in Africa, I'm sorry, uh, go on their own money, and they don't actually interact with the government at all. So all of the risk is on the entrepreneur's shoulders. The government, I don't think, and I may be wrong, Deborah Braudigan probably knows a lot more about this. Well, she definitely knows a lot more about this than I do. Um, but I think that there's a real break between the government and the, the small and medium-sized enterprises. The Export-Import Bank in China, from my understanding, is really supporting very large-scale projects, not the small-scale projects. And that's all being done by a, a totally independent sector. We don't have that independent sector that's going over to Africa to do this. And, and Cobus, I always wonder that, you know, am I being biased towards the Chinese in Africa because it's something that we follow so closely? And I always wonder, you know, if I was following Franco-African relations as closely as I follow Chinese-African relations, well, we would find that there's a French trade fair in, you know, some country. We would find that the French are opening up language academies. And we'd think, wow, look at all the things that the French are doing. Yet, when I go and look and, and try to find evidence that the French and the Americans are, are as dynamic as the Chinese are right now at every level, you know, whether it's launching a satellite for the Congolese, building an airport in Ghana, building airports in, in, in Kenya, you know, doing language instruction and launching digital TV trials. I mean, the list of things that the Chinese are doing is huge. Um, and I wonder if it's just because of our intellectual bias, because that's what we focus, that we see the Chinese being more dynamic, or is it in fact because the Chinese actually are more dynamic? What are your thoughts on that? My feeling is that the Chinese probably are more dynamic. Um, and one one reason, one difference is, you know, there seems to be in America and, and, and Europe, there seems to be a, a bit of a psychological barrier towards Africa. You know, just maybe it's it's preconceived ideas. Maybe it's worrying that they'll come off to seem colonialist or, you know, I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, but, you know, there, there definitely seems to be, you know, a, a strong feeling that Africa just just falls off the, the edge of the earth. So basically, they're, they're off the map of possibility. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, kind of there's, there's been talk that um, that President François Hollande um, is want to, you know, wants to weaken um, this Franc-Afrique you know, kind of traditional kind of, uh, you know, French relationship with with the, the Francophone Africa. Um, do you think, that, you know, is, is that um, in, re in response to China? And how do you no. think France's, um, you know, kind of relationship with, with Africa is going to develop in, in the 21st century? Well, it's really, it's in response to Sarkozy, who was his predecessor in, 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 in Elysee Palace, who really, you know, he, he had the opposite idea. He wanted to, Sarkozy, Nicolas Sarkozy, the former president, wanted to use the, the, Franc, the France Afrique bloc, the France Afrique block to as as a really as, as as a hedge against the chinese so what what uh, sarkozy did is he invited i remember when i was in paris he invited up 
all of the heads of state of the uh, of the French uh, Franco-African countries. He wanted to kind of you know unite them, and he wanted to kind of use that as a lever against the Chinese. So what the Hollande is coming in and doing is he's saying, I want to smash that block. I want to have you know relationships with each and every African country on its merits. Uh, that said, uh, from my time in France and from my time dealing with both French policymakers, diplomats, and journalists, um, they are extraordinarily blinded by their own past and their own narrative. That is, the, the, the definition of Africa for the French um, is French Africa, that is, Ivory Coast, Senegal, Mali. These are the countries that really dominate. And if it's an Anglophone country or a Portuguese-speaking country, it just doesn't exist on their radar, um, in, in, their, in, their, in their thinking. And that's when I say when they're prisoners of their own narratives. One of the things that I see about the Chinese um, is that they are equal opportunity. They will go into the Arabic North. They will go into the Portuguese-speaking West. They will go into South Africa. I mean, there is nowhere that the Chinese aren't. And I think that it's much more difficult for the uh, for the French to kind of move out of their Maghreb-focused uh, geopolitical kind of sphere and to, to basically put themselves into Zambia. I mean, when was the last time, Kobus, that you really saw a massive French presence in places like South Africa or Zambia or, or Mozambique into non-Francophone countries? I mean, you just don't see their presence there. Yeah, the only the only exception I would say is, is uh, you know big multinationals like well, Total. Like Total, I mean that's um, the, you that's know they the obviously have lots of investments everywhere, but um, but more than that, you know, kind of what you pretty much see in South Africa is like the Alliance Francaise, you know, um, and in you know, a kind of government, you know, diplomatic and government organs. Uh, I don't see uh, I don't see many small uh, or like small and medium enterprises from from France here. Definitely not. And I guess my frustration, both with the French and the Americans, is that. Uh, and, and, you know, and we've talked about this in the past with the Americans as well, is while we, the Americans in the West, are focusing on, you know, civil and political rights, the Chinese are focusing on economics and economic development. We focus on aid, uh, and they focus on trade. Um, you know, the, the Guardian this past week had an excellent, excellent piece on, on Congo and said that really the, the war in Congo right now is the consequence, the direct consequence of Western aid to both Kinshasa and to Rwanda. And that we wanted in the West so badly for, you know, Joseph Kabila to be a legitimate leader, that we ignored all of the human rights violations, we ignored all the problems and gave him money. And again, that's a that's another great example of how I think that the West is is just, it can't see beyond its own paradigm, and it can't change what it's been doing for the past 50 years. And I think the Chinese are coming in uh, with a, a new model. Now, at that said, the Chinese are now starting to do more in the aid sphere. They're starting to replicate some of the behavior of, of the Western powers. Uh, so we may, in fact, see in the next couple of years the Chinese making the very same mistakes on this. Um, I've gone on a little bit too long on this. Let me give you <laughs> – you know, I have a lot to say on this one. Uh, and final comments to you on this one. What's your thought on, on both the U.S. and France trying to, to, to rival China and Africa or at least contain the Chinese in Africa so that they can remain competitive with these increasingly economically dynamic states? Well, I think you're um, right that there is a, a move from the Chinese to kind of diversify their uh, engagement in Africa and not just do infrastructure and economic um, projects, but also do sort of, you know, educational exchanges or, you know, seven doctors or um, things like that. And I think that, um, you know, it, I, I think that France and um, the West will always be haunted by their colonial history. And I think that um, you know, you see China coming in and doing purely 
uh, economic, um, you know, business with Africa and still be la- being labeled as a neocolonial um, kind of actor by some people. And I think that if France were to really make a huge um, kind of pivot towards Africa and kind of reinvestment in Africa, it might face um, some of the same kind of, uh, I guess, backlashes. Yeah. So um, I think it's, it's very hard um, to kind of know how to engage directly with Africa. Kobus, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, one of the ironies, I think, of, of, of the way that the Chinese are seen is that before the Chinese started really engaging commercially, they had similar kind of uh, engagements as as Europe in the sense that they did send doctors and they they did, you know, do some kind of aid-esque, you know, kind of projects um, from the, from you know, after the Bandung conference in 55 and, you know, through the Zhou Enlai kind of era. Um, and then it's, it's interesting that they, you know, kind of their new approach, which is a more commercial approach, is now being being characterized as an old, like, neocolonial approach. You know, so that's an interesting kind of disjunction. Um, I think it's also, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see in the future. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that I'm a little worried about is that I'm worried that in the same way that, that Europeans and Americans' views of Africa is, has been shaped by, you know, by decades and decades of aid, I think Africa's perceptions of itself and Africa's perceptions of the world have also been shaped by decades of aid. Um, and I'm, I'm worried to the extent to, you know, that, so that African governments demand aid simply because that's what they're used to. Um, you know, that they don't develop new kinds of paradigms of how they, of what they want from the world and that they might miss a chance to kind of develop a new, develop to a new stage of, of a relationship with the world simply because that's what they're used to. Yeah. I mean, that will be interesting to see as, as so many of the African economies are, are rapidly developing. And this goes back to our conversation from, I think it was last week or the week before about, uh, you know, a majority of African states moving up into middle income country status. Will the aid be as central to them because of their increased economic development. So that'll be something, obviously, we'll have to wait five or ten years to, to figure out. Uh, in the meantime, that will be all the time we have for this week for the show. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you and what you think on any of the topics that we've addressed. Anne is standing by at the keyboard, uh, moderating our community of 17,000 people over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, what we're seeing now more and more is a really lively conversation uh, next week, Anne will bring us you know, some of the conversations that we've had, but we had a really great exchange this past week on illegal uh, Chinese gold mining in, in Ghana. Uh, we've had some past discussions on aid, and, and, and it's just a really nice forum between uh, largely African population, for the most part, is our, is our Facebook page, heavily North African, actually. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you. So that's a great place. We post the show there as well, so you can listen to past episodes. Make sure you look for that little orange box that says podcast. And the past 25 episodes are there uh, on our SoundCloud uh, file as well. But uh, in the meantime, Anne, if people want to follow what you're doing out in Beijing uh, at the Tsinghua Carnegie Center, where can they find you on Twitter? I'm at A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-0-7. Anne Sure 7 And, of course, Anne is also on our Facebook page. Uh, and uh, Kobus, if people want to follow you and what you're doing down in Cape Town at the Center for Chinese Studies, what is the best way that they can follow you? Um, I'm at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. 
Uh, I tweet almost every day on the Top China Africa headlines. Uh, but if all of this is too complicated for you to remember, again, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. There's a little blue button there that says Twitter feeds. And so Anne, Kobus, and myself, well, all of our feeds are right there in one page. And, you know, we're out there kind of scouring the headlines and kind of putting them up on Twitter. So think of it as a, as a newswire of sorts. So uh, that'll do it. And again, if you want to subscribe to our podcast, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, we're kind of everywhere we need to be. We would love to hear from you. Love for you to sign up for the podcast. And also, if you can leave us a comment or two on our iTunes page, that really helps, uh, you know, just move us up into the to more visibility in the iTunes ecosystem. So until next week, we'll have another edition of the China and Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>